This is the Seedfield Podcast, the show where Antiochians share their knowledge, tell their stories, and come together to win victories for humanity. I'm your host, Jasper Nighthawk, and today we are joined by the psychologist, scholar, and teacher, Monique Bowen. Monique is a professor in the Department of Clinical Psychology at Antioch University, New England, and we're excited to have her on the show to talk about psychoanalysis, trauma, and the ways we can use psychological insights and techniques as we work to heal our communities. Monique is a great person to help explore these questions. She's a working psychologist. Before coming to Antioch, she worked in a forensic psychiatry service. And she also has an extensive research background, working in areas of familial and interpersonal violence, coping and resilience across childhood and adolescence, forensic assessment and clinical interviewing, and the application of psychoanalytic ideas to social problems. Here at Antioch, she has been serving over the last year as the co-chair of the university-wide anti-racism task force. And in the wider world of psychology, she was selected as an early career scholar by the Society for Psychoanalysis and Psychoanalytic Psychology. She's recently been publishing book reviews in the journal Psychoanalytic Psychology. Monique, welcome to the Seedfield podcast. Thank you, Jasper. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to talk with you today about your specialization within psychology and the ways that we can use psychological knowledge in community healing. But before we get into all of that, I would love to know more of your story. How did you come to spend your career as a psychologist and as a teacher of psychologists? It's a great question and helpful in terms of orienting our conversation. I think I knew pretty early in my adolescence that something about both the life of the mind, uh, so being curious and being encouraged to be curious, both through conversation and getting to know people, but also through book and article reading and just sort of following my own interests and being encouraged to see them through to their natural end. Mm -hmm. And so I think the journey toward academia and scholarship and teaching and research sort of was a good fit for me. I think I also knew pretty early on that I had a sort of a uniquely tuned ear for trauma and pain and wanting to be present for that exploration that needed exploration. And something about this field gave me room to consider how I could maybe be of help uh, as people journeyed toward healing. That's that's so beautiful. I see like two sections to what you said there of like loving this like life of the mind. And there's something kind of internal to the mind to be a curious person and to be curious about almost the organ of curiosity, but then to also find that you had this gift around trauma and healing. I'm curious what you said you had, you had this eye for trauma. What did, what did that look like? How did you know that you had this gift? Um, well, actually, I would say ear more than eye, mm. you know, tuned my hearing. How did I know? I guess the way most people end up knowing most things about themselves is through their familial others, um, the people around you, 
the kinds of conversations, the things that are privileged within families in terms of conversation or what has meaning versus what's uh, said to not be important. You know, the things that people don't want to attend to become noteworthy. Why is it that we're not talking about this particular issue? It's come up in the household. You know, what is it about the thing I'm talking about that's triggering some familial or familiar sense of related experience that is too difficult to approach? So I think I was just acutely aware of my parents and my family members' life experiences that were deeply rooted in both American slavery, but also in European colonization of the African continent, and that those aspects of experience were greatly informing the things that were talked about and not talked about in my family. Yeah, thank you for disclosing that. And that's also, it, it, seems, it seems to me like having that kind of emotional intelligence is a gift, but it, it also, it can be a heavy thing to take on. It can be intense to to have access and to be able to to hear the notes of people's emotional distress that other people might be able to just let flow by on their way to the park or something. Mm. So I, I wanted to ask you, your specialty within psychology is psychoanalysis. And how did you come to to study psychoanalysis and to, to find that as your most useful psychological mm. framework? Well, Jasper, I would say that... Um... Rather than the study of psychoanalysis, my training was in one of the few remaining programs that has as its organizing framework psychoanalysis, but I think that they would probably say psychodynamic psychology is more sort of apropos as a descriptor for that training. The part where psychoanalysis became more of a a feature for me was really more toward the middle and tail end of my training as I began to explore my dissertation topic that really revolved around experiences of reverie and imagination and interior monologue on the part of the therapist in the context of the therapeutic encounter. And at that point, really diving headlong into the literature of over a hundred years of writing about transference and countertransference experiences, as well as reading literature and other areas of analysis like philosophy and mathematical philosophy to understand some of the things that I was trying to appreciate about communication and the communication within therapy. Yeah, but could we just back up and define what psychoanalysis is, like what that what what that idea is and like how it maybe differs from other therapies that and therapeutic modalities that are used today? Okay. Yeah, so, you know, I I think probably the most helpful understanding of uh, psychoanalysis I think has to do on an insistence on seeking and and seeking that which isn't known and the transformational power that can come from discovery and that insistence, that work of understanding our own uh, journey, our you know mutual journeys with others and as a culture, society, a people. There are so many areas of research and, and discipline 
that look at aspects of communication. And within psychoanalysis, the way that we explore that communication is multi-determined, but at the, the base idea of it is to sort of reach a place of a deeper knowledge that comes from the things that we're not thinking about that are not sort of top of mind. Okay, so this is kind of what we would call like the unconscious, the idea that there are, yes. there are these ideas or desires mm -hmm. or drives that we have, mm -hmm. but that we're not consciously aware of that aren't kind of top of mind but that might be mm -hmm. motivating our, or underlying our actions. Is that yes. fair? I think I'm, it is fair. I, I, you're hearing me give the description that I often give to my kids mm. <laughs> and, um, and to people who are not psychologically minded, who are like, what is this business? Like, what is, you know, I know Freud, and that seems like, you know, really distant from anything that I'd want anything to do with in terms of going into a therapy with anyone. And so if psychoanalysis is the version of a therapeutic experience that you work with, like, I don't really relate to that. And I don't think a lot of people do. I also think folks don't know a lot about Freud um, and his own beginnings. But my point being that psychoanalysis is a process. It is a way that we can look at and potentially explain certain phenomena, not unlike other areas of therapeutic analysis that one might participate in. I guess what really I find helpful in it, again, is that attempt to make space for the exploration of the unknown aspects the things that we're not holding front of mind that are key to our decision-making, key to our approaching certain relationships or challenges, and key to backing away from others. And the more that we can appreciate our own position and the various ways that that position is influenced by things that are not front of mind, we have an opportunity to like know more about ourselves in relationship to others. Thank you so much for backing up and giving that explanation, which makes makes sense. And I think for me, who I've read some Freud and I've have some exposure to these ideas, but I've never heard it expressed quite like that. And that makes sense why you'd be interested in this process of seeking these these underlying or deeper motivations and causes. So I think I interrupted you when you were talking about how this comes to play in communication and how, how do you see psychoanalysis informing like a deeper understanding of communication between different people or among communities? At the heart of it, the word connection is coming to mind um, and how one maintains um, connection to self and others. A big part of a successful psychotherapy um, let alone an analytic treatment, is the kind of compassion for oneself and for others that's necessary for quality engagement to occur and for the kind of collaboration that I think is a hallmark of good communication, that you're acknowledging your conversational partner that you are hearing them and being available for things that may be difficult to hear, 
and that you're listening as a conversational partner in that communication, that unique communication that can occur within a therapy treatment, being open to learning something about yourself that comes from that communication with that partner. That's beautiful. The the idea that kind of like true communication involves a revelation of the self almost. Mm-hmm. So, well, I, I wanted to move our, our conversation to the idea of um, using psychoanalytic ideas to address social problems. We live in a time where social problems are on the front page of the newspaper all the time and just at the front of so many of our of our consciousnesses, at, at the front of mind, really, for, for a lot of us, from police murders of Black people to the persecution of migrants and ongoing gun violence and even the political violence in the capital. So I was curious how you see psychoanalytic ideas helping us to understand these problems and maybe to work towards some resolutions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Jasper, I think one thing that's important and useful to just sort of begin this conversation is that I don't imagine that the intent at the beginning of psychoanalytic applications in the clinical sphere was ever meant to address social ills or problems directly. I, I, I think that we can all agree in our field anyway, that the main criticism of psychoanalysis over the decades um, has been its relentless focus on the internal experience and the explanation of one's internal, excuse me, internal experience for the phenomena that we see in the world, right? That it's... That's that's sort of what we call like navel gazing. (laughs) Well, yes. I think in its most sort of elitist and the most critical, you know, view of psychoanalysis as a, an elitist activity. Yes. Very much so. And that psychoanalysis has also been largely neglectful of um, looking at power and how power functions within relationships and the centrality of power as part of our own sort of psychic, you know, the way we make sense of the world often is through our understandings of our own position, being agentic and having power or not. And so that knock on psychoanalysis is fully earned in its earliest iterations. The reason I am interested and have been interested in the application of psychoanalytic ideas to the problems I see and that we all are experiencing is that it's that same sense of not looking at a problem that is exactly why we should use these techniques to explore this problem. It is made from the willing and willful lack of exploration and lack of naming in a fully aware way the power of the relationship to heal the relationship that's been formed based on power differential, the relationship that's been formed around race and other aspects of identity that should be contested in the therapy space. 
are opportunities for people to actually engage with another person's subjectivity and make meaning where these things can be contested with the understanding that it's occurring within a space that can hold it, where safety is the understanding that the other person is willing to look at their own subjectivity as well as yours and how we are communicating with each other given that interaction. And so rather than continue to do the thing that I think had been sort of the hallmark description of the field, which was this sort of tabla rasa, blank slate analyst looking at and pointing to the challenges of the patient or the things that are interrupting their ability to be successful in life. That once the therapist is included or the analyst is included in that exploration and a more even playing ground can be established, their opportunities are endless for the kinds of projections that get played out between people to be explored. That's such an interesting like expansion of the idea of the unconscious and of, of kind of like the underlying causes of behaviors or of worldviews. It sounds to me like almost like what you're describing is like what we call like implicit bias or internalized racism or internalized, you know, homophobia or these underlying these things that oftentimes people will have like workplace trainings to try to help people become aware of the the ideas that underlie underlie their behaviors. But you're kind of explicitly unpacking them, maybe in a more exploratory way. Mm-hmm. You know, Jasper, that's so interesting that you went to a place of talking about bias and race. I really wasn't thinking about that in that moment. Mm -hmm. But I guess that's my point, that there is something very um, basic about our communications and ways in which we, at our most human, are prone to find differences between ourselves and others, to win in some way, um, if we're in a more individualistic society, or if we're in a more collectivist one, perhaps more around maintaining of boundaries and, and sense of the collective over the individual. All of it, though, I think, you know, just to go back to your point about the ways in which the internal processes are operating, even when we're not um, wanting them to be, and and are certainly not consciously offering them up in certain situations, that it's important for the therapist to recognize the existence of ideologies that exist within our world that are pro-racist, that are that are exclusive, that are elite and creating a separation between us and them. And when I say I privilege the communication between the therapist and the patient, there is less us, them in that, as opposed to they or um, we, and looking for opportunities to bring into awareness all the ways that the various Um, things that should keep us from being in relationship with each other, we can actually use that as an opportunity to connect and understand something and heal. That's so, yeah. I wonder if there's like an example you could, you could point to. I know that there's like 
therapist client privilege, obviously, but like what, what might this look like in practice? If you were in a therapy session as the therapist, what kind of relationship might you be creating and how would you elicit this kind of conversation? Mm -hmm. I'm having a particular case in mind that was a one session therapy. And it was one session before the decision for it to be one session was decided by things outside of my control or the patient's control, but had everything to do with how the patient came to me and how they were prepared and how I was prepared for the transfer of this case to my care. And from the beginning, the client was very clear that they could not work with me. The assumption had been that because of our shared ancestry, racial uh, history, that we would be a good pair. And in fact, the patient wanted uh, to be very clear that that could never be the grounds for our work because there was nothing about their racial story as a African with my racial story, which to them was as a black American and never the twain shall meet. <laughs> right. So, so they felt such an experience of the difference of your backgrounds. They felt like that was insurmountable. Insurmountable is a good word. Um, that despite the compassion that I could bring to the treatment, curiosity about their experience, an acknowledgement of our lack of sameness, even though it was assumed, the anger the patient felt about the transfer, which was partially about race because it was the thing that was not talked about between the patient and their therapist, a white European person, and the thing that was immediately being talked about in this engagement. And all the things that that transfer was about, which were not um, on the nose about race, but certainly were about the differences between the former therapist and the patient. The patient was told the wish on the part of the therapist that this would be the work that would be ahead for them, that that was the thing that they had not explored in that treatment. And therefore, the place to do it would be in this next one, with someone of a shared background. And coming to that one session was out of respect for the therapist having tried to do this, but really to tell me that it would never work. That I had been chosen for all the wrong reasons and that I, as a result, I had to be rejected. And so I spent much of that session really listening and trying to empathize and it didn't take much to empathize, to empathize with that experience of rejection and loss and real frustration at being seen on what for them felt like a very surface level. Yeah. What do you, it sounds like this was a, an opportunity for reflection on your, on your part as a therapist. Did you feel like you had accomplished anything in that single session with that patient? Yes. I stay connected as much as I could to their experience. And I did my best to maintain a sense of compassion for um, this patient, but also for their therapist who thought they were doing 
right by them. And then I thought a lot too about sort of what this conversation between me as a bicultural person of West African descent directly and descended from American slavery directly, you know, and how that was not part of this person's experience of me, but certainly informed some of my understanding of how I was, how I was being rejected by this patient. The ways in which Black Africans and Black Americans have lots in common and lots unknown to the other. And there was a part of me that hoped for the opportunity to form a more active conversation with this person so that we could do that exploration and work together and maybe in our own way heal some of that uh, rift that exists. Yeah. I think what's interesting listening to you tell this story is the way that the therapeutic space really is like a place for conversation and growth, not just healing on the part of the patient, but maybe a deeper understanding of the world for both the patient and for the therapist. I think it's healing for the patient, for the therapist, and for the world that I'm talking about. Hi, I'm going to cut away from the interview for a second here to let you know that the Seedfield podcast is produced by Antioch University. Let's make the world better together. Complete your bachelor's or your master's or study for a doctoral degree with us here at Antioch University. When you join Antioch, you will be joining a community with 160 years of commitment to social, environmental, and economic justice. Win one for humanity. Learn more at antioch.edu. So I was thinking about the ways that as a white man, Growing up in the in the 1990s, this like largely white culture I was growing up in basically handed me a lot of these degrading stereotypes and even like pathologies about black communities, especially like urban black communities that that said that there was almost this like psychological explanation for differences in wealth, for differences in career outcomes, whether families were able to stay together and dependence on government programs. And so it, it seems to me that psychology has has the opportunity to almost be weaponized mm-hmm. and psych, psychology and this language of pathology can be weaponized mm-hmm. to kind of stifle mm-hmm. community healing. That's right. So taking that history in mind, how can the practice and tools of psychoanalysis be powerful vehicles for communities to in fact heal? I think that the um, equipping piece comes in the recognition that we cannot abandon our individual histories, our respective politics and political viewpoints, our connections to power, that none of these things really are ours to let go of as though they are without impact that that awareness, that distinct awareness about the ways in which our individual subjectivities are in constant sort of 
push-pull with others, that the therapeutic relationship or a relationship grounded in compassion and um, a relationship built on empathic relating, that those are the places where issues and history and power and other influences that stand to separate us can be discussed and that there isn't anything that's off limits about those conversations, that no one is going to die, to be literal, um, by having those conversations, but people have been greatly hurt and wounded by them. And we have an opportunity with empathy first and compassion first and training in how to hold both hold a boundary, but also hold a uh, reality sense about the harms that have been done by racism in this country. And, you know, this ideology or thing called psychoanalysis cannot be separated from the power structures in which this was created. A lot of harm has come from um, psychological, quote unquote, research that, you know, named people as limited, as primitive, as somehow disconnected or irrational, pathologized language that still exists, that people are still attempting to heal from. If we could pull back from that and acknowledge its harm and create spaces that are not predicated on the kind of malicious use of power differentials and instead lean into our shared humanity. And I and that's not easy. I'm saying that and it sounds all, you know, ooh, <laughs> but that's not easy. That is hard work. It is hard work to stand in a space like that, given the historical uh, weight of history. That's kind of a double statement, historical weight of history, but you get my point. Yeah, it's a big prescription to write to ask people to be very forthright about their own prejudices or their their own places that they're coming from that, that may be harmful and to be honest and unafraid and compassionate with all of that? Well, I don't know about unafraid. I think you have to, I think there's fear in mm. this. But if your traditional stance is using, you know, this sort of nothing affects me or tabula rasa, like I have no history. Yeah. I. It's all about you, the patient, and what I see, which is nonsense, frankly, in a contemporary framework. Yeah, we don't we don't come out of nothing. We don't come from nothing. And so if if part of the history in this country has been that one group has told another group or one group has told many other groups that you come from nothing or nothing that you should be particularly proud of, right? And that all sets of decisions within a society get built around that, then it's the job of the analyst, it's the job of the therapist, it's the job of the teacher to acknowledge and recognize a change point can occur, that 
one's own subjectivity can be to not stand in that position of ignoring history. That act alone, I think, is, is uh, groundbreaking for many people. To say, yes, that happened, or I don't know the full history on that and I want to learn more about it, but I'm not going to reject your truth because I lack that knowledge. Yeah. And so thinking about healing communities through this kind of Mm -hmm. search for truth and search for the underlying motivations, the deeper, the deeper things that are behind us, I was wondering what you would view a truly healthy community as being, if it would be one in which these conversations were, were safe to be had or safer, what we should be striving for as we use these tools to heal our communities. You know how um, when you're a kid, I don't know if this is familiar to you from your cultural traditions, but one thing that I remember and that I know I have passed on both consciously and unconsciously when my kids were young was about hands and not, you know, not hitting another kid, right? (laughs) Keep your hands to yourself. But it would come more in the form of um, hands are for loving and healing, not for hurting. And I guess the thing that comes to mind in response to your your question has to do with tools being used for healing and for loving and not for harming. So making a point to access history and politics and power for healing, for reconciliation versus punishment, harm directly preventing someone from achieving as part of holding on to some sense of self as powerful and agentic over another person versus in relationship to another person. And the kind of sharing that would need to happen, the kind of honest revealing and potentially self-effacing, you know, one might be embarrassed to say the things that they thought that were they thought were based in something real or that they think may be based in something real, but they're not sure. Uh, and is there a place where they can do that? And I don't think that every place is the place for this. The thing that we're talking about is radical shift. And I don't think it you know pops up on street corners. Um, but I do think that there are enough people of goodwill to want to start somewhere, who want to harm less versus harm more. Yeah. Well, I think that that might be a beautiful place for us to leave this conversation is with that idea of using using our hands and our words and our presence in a space for healing, not for hurting. Thank you so much, Monique. It's been a pleasure talking with you today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You can learn more about the doctorate in clinical psychology by visiting Antioch's website, and we'll have a specific link in the show notes. We post these show notes on our website, theseedfield.org, where you'll also find full episode transcripts, prior episodes, and more. The Seedfield podcast is produced by Antioch University. Our editor is Lauren Instanez. A special thanks to Karen Hamilton and Melinda Garland. Thank you.
thank you for spending your time with us today. That's it for this episode. We hope to see you next time. And don't forget to plant a seed, sow a cause, and win a victory for humanity. From Antioch University, this has been the Seedfield Podcast. Podcast.